there was a cartoon. And it's vaguely in my mind, but I, I, I think it was called Red Riding Hood. I think it was called Red Riding Hood. And it told the story of Little Red Riding Hood. But it was a cartoon film that went on for about, I don't know, an hourish at least. Well, how, how could you tell, how can you take an hour to tell the story of Red Riding Hood? Well, what was interesting about this cartoon, I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it. I'm sure I'm right. Was that it told the story of Little Red Riding Hood from, first of all, let's say the perspective of Red Riding Hood. And then from the perspective of the wolf. And then from the perspective of the grandmother. It was the same story. It was very clever. They interwove all the stories. Has anyone seen it? I've not just made it up. No, I've not, I know I'm not just, I've not just made it up. I know uh, it's well worth getting hold of. And they, they interweaved the story, and they, they were very clever in how they did it, because they showed the same events, but one from Red Riding Hood, and then uh, from a slightly different perspective, the same event shown visually uh, from the wolf, and, and, and then what his reaction was, and, and then from, uh, I think it was Grandmother, and it was fascinating film. I, I found it absolutely fascinating how the same story could be told in three different ways because it was seen through three different eyes. Or, or if you watch a football match, and watching a football match, as you watch a football match, there's the home supporters and there's away supporters. And you almost think they're watching different matches, don't you? Do you know, they're, 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 or they're responding to the match in very different ways, aren't they? When there's a goal, there's elation on one side and there's sheer despair on the other. Uh, and then if there's a contestable, a contestable uh, decision by the referee or the linesman, well, you'd think from one side the man needs hanging and you'd think the other side the man needs to be made a saint. They're watching the same thing but from different perspectives. Perspective matters, doesn't it? Perspective matters. Now, now we're, we're coming uh, to 2 Corinthians. And uh, my, my thinking is, is to, we see things from a very human perspective as we live in this world. You know, when we see the events of this world, we see it from a very human perspective. And Paul encourages us to see it from God's perspective. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. And we are seeing the same things that God is seeing, but very often God is seeing it in a different way to what we see. And we're in the thick of it, and we're often weak, and we're often limited. Whereas God, he's working out his plan, and he knows everything that's happening, and he's without uh, power, without, without limit. And so when we see things... now. What's important is that we begin to see things the way God sees them. That's what's important. That's what we see here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, first heading, very simply, uh, the conflict and the concern. I want to look at that. The setting, and then Christ as conqueror, uh, secondly, and then a commission to serve him with God's perspective now in our minds. The, the conflict and the concern. Uh, Paul does not live in an ivory tower. 
He, he does not live on a bed of roses and a mattress of duck feathers. He lives in first century Rome. Uh, and at this point, he is writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, he, is, he is reviewing uh, history, things that have happened recently and in his lifetime. He is a nomadic man. He lives a nomadic life. And he's a church planter. He's always looking for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. That's, that's what he wants to do. That's what God has called him to do. And he's doing it in first century pagan Rome culture. And that's got huge challenges. In fact, what he recounts here, beginning at verse 12, I came to Troas. Uh, he's speaking about something that happened in the past. And he arrived at Troas because when he was in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel, someone had caused a riot and he'd nearly died. And he left Ephesus and he went to Troas because his life was in very great danger. So he's not, he's not a man who lives in an ivory tower. And having left Ephesus, you can imagine his mind, his thinking at this point, how are they going to survive? How will this young church survive? I mean, imagine, imagine going up to one of the valley's communities, uh, one of the ones that no longer has a church, and, and you go and you do an outreach there, and, and you tell them about, about Jesus Christ. And then the local government chucks you out and threatens you with imprisonment and uh, long imprisonment and all kinds of things. And, and you, you've got to leave them. You've got to leave them. You can't stay. And you'd worry well, I wasn't there very long. Uh, and, and how much can they really know? Uh, and, and who will lead them? And, and how will they survive? And how will they survive in such a hostile environment? So, so Paul's not living in a, he's not living in a gilded cage. And certainly not in a bed of roses. He's living a real life, like your life and like my life. And you say, maybe you say someone, you say something, someone becomes a Christian. When they become a Christian, well, let's say they're 16 or 17, they become a Christian, and they go to university, and you think, how on earth are they going to survive in university? How are they going to survive? It's hostile against the gospel in university. And let's say they're doing a philosophy course, very hostile against the gospel. And how will they survive? And your, your heart is filled with, with anxiety, because there are very real dangers there. Now, Paul travels, he says here that he traveled to Troas. Now, when he left Ephesus, he went to Troas. And he stayed in Troas because he was hoping that a man called Titus, his friend, would come and meet him. And so they'd obviously, I think by the reading of it, they had arranged to meet in Troas. Now, Titus, his friend, was not with Paul, but was on a journey. And Titus's friend was taking a letter to Corinth, a church that Paul had planted, because it had absolutely begun to melt down in the church in Corinth. There were all kinds of things happening. After the evening service, the men were going up to the local, um, local uh, uh, temple and sleeping with the prostitutes who were there. There was someone in the church who was sleeping with some close relative. Uh, there were snake oil salesmen, religious snake oil salesmen, peddling for money, which is why Paul says we didn't peddle for money. They had appeared at the church, hoping to get rich 
by preaching a gospel that makes you rich, which is not the true gospel. And so they were influenced by these super apostles who were saying, well, I know, this, I know how to, to make you super spiritual quickly. And they, had, and, and they were falling for it. And, but and when the people said, well, that's not what Paul taught, the super apostle said, yeah, but he's just an apostle. We're super apostles. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. And, and Paul had to write letters. And we have his first letter, his second letter, his second letter he wrote, he knew it would be painful. And he wrote it rather than going there because he didn't want to cause them a lot more pain. Because if he had gone there, it would have hurt a lot. So he sent a letter, very wise man. And he sent Titus, who had his heart, with this letter. When he got to Troas, Titus wasn't there. And he becomes anxious. We read that a door was opened for me. He says there was a, a wonderful opportunity in Troas. I, 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 there was an opportunity to preach the gospel. There's an opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. It was a wide open door. But I couldn't rest. I was restless. I, 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 there was an anxiety in my heart and in my soul. Titus wasn't there. How had Corinth received the letter? Had they received it well? Why is Titus not back? Have they beaten him up? Have they taken his money? Are they so angry with him that they're treating him badly? I don't know, it could happen. It could happen. Uh, has his ship got wrecked on the way? Certainly that could happen. Going across, I think it's the Aegean Sea, isn't it? Between Troas and... Um, and uh, as, 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 uh, as, uh, in Corinth, has there, has there been a shipwreck? And, and, and he's concerned about his friend. He's concerned about the church. Did they receive the message well? Will they respond? And he says, I, I couldn't stay. And I, I went up into Macedonia. You can read about this in Acts chapter 20. You can read this, this event and, uh, in, in Acts chapter 20. if you said to Paul, how are things going, Paul, at this point, what do you think he would have said? Not very well at all. Not very well at all. I, 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 it's, it's, if, I, if I can only see things from a human's perspective, devoid of God's word and faith, I'm deeply disheartened. I'm, 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 I'm worried about Ephesus. I wonder how they're going to survive with the limited knowledge that they have. And the hostile environment they're in. I'm, I'm worried about Corinth. I'm worried about the letter that I sent to Corinth and I don't know how well it's been received. I'm worried about, where's, where's my friend Titus? He's like a son to me, he says. You can read a, a letter written by Paul to this man, Titus, in your Bible. And in many ways, at this point, it looks like failure. And then when a door does open, and there are opportunities in Troas, he walks away. He walks away from it. From a human perspective, it looks somewhat disastrous, doesn't it? How's your year been? I hope it's been better than Paul's. 
Though there may be elements of Paul in it, you know. But I hope it's been better than Paul's. But in the middle of life, we tend to only see the things that are going wrong. We, we fix on the bad things. We worry about the things that we don't know about. Things that are outside of our control and, and outside of, of um, our knowledge. You know, we worry, we worry about our young people going to university. We don't know what they're, how they're behaving. We don't know. So we worry about them. However, as time goes on, a new picture does begin to emerge. Ephesus, the church there, doesn't just survive. It thrives. It absolutely thrives. And it becomes a center for the gospel. Paul, no need to worry. He meets up with Titus, who is still alive and kicking and speaking with great news. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he mentions this. He's brought back good news. Good news of your response to my letter. Good news of repentance. And here in chapter 2, he says, you know, the people that, that, that were causing trouble in the church, having repented, then welcome them. You know, let, let's have some healing. And whatever you've forgiven them of the trouble they caused you, what they said about me, I forgive them as well. So, so, God's at work. God's at work. Your anxiety, while real and from a deep heart, well, God dealt with it. God dealt with it. And the church in Troas that you abandoned, rather than staying and making use of all the opportunities, you left it. You went off. But three months later, you come back and there's a thriving church. You can read that in Acts chapter 20 as well. And actually, Acts chapter 21. In reality, Paul, God uses you but doesn't need you. It's not all on you. The salvation of men and women is not all on you. The success of the gospel is not all on you. God's at work. You do what you're called to do. God's at work. It, it may not. Things may not be working out the way you expect, but God has a plan, and his plan is to do his church good and glorify Jesus Christ. But better to glorify Jesus Christ and to do the church good. So that's the context. But in the middle of the kind of mess, he's thankful. And so when we're in the middle of it, and we have the we have the opportunity of hindsight, don't we? We can see what Paul couldn't see when he was in the middle of it. We can see the end, or towards the end. We won't see finally what happens till we get to glory. But in the middle of it, he's thankful. When, when things are not going particularly well, can you be thankful? Can you see things from God's perspective? My second point is Christ the conqueror in procession. Paul describes the Christian in the middle of that as thanks be to God, verse 14. Remember chapter 2 is taken up with all the troubles really and, and, and all of that and, is, and leaving Troas and worrying about Titus and, and all of that. Verse 14, in the middle of all the mess, I will praise God. 
Thanks be to God. Here's a heavenly perspective. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let's start, whatever our situation, let's be thankful to God. Thankful to God for what we have. Thankful to God for what he's done. Let us constantly give thanks to God. Let us be known as a thankful people. Even, even when things are not going our way, even when things are not going as we expect, we, we, be, we give thanks to God for those things that have done, those things that are doing. Count your blessings, says the little, the little song. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. And it's true. If you begin to count your blessings, thanks be to God that in Christ, says Paul, in Christ, we're united to Christ. Thanks be to God that our future, our eternity, what we are and what we're worth and what we can do is not because of what we are in ourselves, but because of what we are in Christ. We do not see ourselves as an island, but as united to Jesus Christ. We do not see ourselves alone, but in Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God in Jesus Christ. We thank God that through Christ we have salvation. Through Christ we have sins forgiven. Through Christ we have power. Through Christ we have a reason to live. Through Christ we have an eternal hope. In Christ... We are thankful, always, always. Paul says, always. Be thankful in Christ, always, consistently, continually, day and night. When times are going well, when times are going badly, you're in Christ. Be thankful, always. Never forget, never give up, never stop thanking God. You're always in Christ. So always be thankful. Now, how do you view your life? Paul says this is what you are. You are in triumph, procession of Christ. What's your little life? What's your little life? Now, what Paul has in mind here is the arrival home of a conqueror. Uh, someone who's won a great victory and... and and brought safety to a land and stopped wars. And uh, here's the conqueror. Maybe, maybe think of uh, Rome. Maybe thinking of Rome, though it was common in many places. I think it's called the Apian Way in Rome, the main, the main road into Rome. And uh, at the end of it is the temple to... Who was the temple to someone? Uh, one of the big Roman gods... Uh, Jupiter, I think, at the end of the Apian Way is the temple to Jupiter. And so the, 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 the Romans coming back from conquering the world, if they had done very well, they would be invited to do a victory procession and they'd process victoriously into Rome and then give thanks at the, the temple at the end of, uh, end of the road and everyone would be at the side of the road praising them and... and throwing flowers at them and shouting hallelujah. And behind the victor would come his conquest. You know, all the people he had conquered. 
And, and there are pictures of this, and uh, there are carvings of this. I think there are carvings in the British Museum of processions like this with the conqueror and behind him all the peoples that have been conquered. And that's the picture. Christ has won the war. And we are the reward of his suffering. We are his victory procession. We are his captives. We are captivated by him. And we follow him in triumphal procession. It doesn't feel like triumph, our life, does it? But Paul says it is. Christ has won the war. And you are his reward. You are his victory. And you are following him. Follow me, says Jesus Christ. And we follow him. And we are the reward of his suffering. And we are his conquest. And he has won us. And we are his. And we are in him. And we are bound to him. Paul, remember that. Remember that when you're being beaten up in Ephesus. Remember that when you're in Troas and leaving opportunities behind. Remember that when you're worrying about your friends, your Christian friend, and about the church that he's gone to. The war is won. Christ is victorious. Now, what is left are small battles. That's all that's left. You know, we are, we are, we are not in... The war is won. What we face day by day and week by week are just skirmishes, little battles. But the war has been won. But the enemy hasn't given up yet. He will be one day utterly conquered. But at this point, he's, he's, still, he's still trying his hardest, but he's lost. All that's left are the little battles and conflicts. Uh, the gathering of new citizens, new trophies of grace. There's no doubt who will reign on the eternal throne. There's no doubt at all. There's none at all. Your life will not affect the eternal throne and who sits upon it. And the things of this life will not affect the eternal throne and who sits upon it. That is done. That is done. But this life does matter. For it is for a Christian a life that gives glory to the conqueror. And that's why you're here. That's why God has not taken you to himself. You are here to show the conquest of Christ to a watching world. Not only are we in the procession of Christ and evidence and trophies of his victory, but we are used by Christ. We have a role to play. We are to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are to speak about Jesus Christ wherever we go. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. We are to speak about him wherever we go and wherever we go and the way we speak and the things we do and our attitudes and our desires and our priorities all reveal who we belong to. And the world watches. And some will find our lives to be sweet and will be a fragrance to some of life. And they'll say, I want to join. I want to follow. 
I want to be in that victory procession. And there are others, and we will smell like death. We will smell like death. We are the aroma that brings death. That explains your life, doesn't it? As you live as a Christian, for some people, they love to be with you. You're the aroma of of life to life. But for others, your very presence reminds them that they are not what they should be. And it is the aroma of death. You thought about that? Yeah? You put your links on as you leave, or your, I don't know, lily of the valley, and out you go. That's not the real smell, is it? That's not the real smell. When you meet people, what they're responding to is ultimately your face. That's what they're ultimately responding to. And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. And in a way, they're not welcoming you. They're welcoming Christ. Is say, well, in a church, no one likes me. Well, they don't really know you then, do they? But what they love in you is Christ. They love you in Christ. Lastly then, commissioned by the king. Who is sufficient for these things, says Paul. He he looks back then. Here I am, I'm called to be a fragrance of Christ in the world. And to some I am life, to some I am death, and actually they want to kill me. Um, But some I am life, and from my message they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But who am I? Who am I? And he, 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 over his life. Who am I? He's very humanized, isn't it? Who is sufficient for these things? Who am I who persecuted God's people? Paul would say. Maybe you could say the same. Mocked Christians. Failed to support or encourage any interest in the church. If anything, wanted to destroy the church. Paul says, who am I? Who am I to represent Christ? I I organized for Christians to be killed and I persecuted and I chased them from town to town as far as I could. Who am I that, that God would want anything to do with me? Who am I? A sinner. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Who am I? A sinner that God would want anything to do with me. Who am I? Limited and weak that God would want anything to do with me. Who am I? Maybe if from human eyes. Whose, whose churches I minister were ministered to melt down. Who am I? Who am I? Uh, who am I? Says Paul, who doesn't take the opportunities that God gives, leaving opportunities behind, because I'm so distracted. Who am I? Who am I? You're saved by grace, and you're commissioned by God to serve Him. Christ, the victorious conqueror, has commissioned you to represent him and to represent him before a watching world. So Paul says, then, as I've been commissioned by God, I'm not going to use the truth of God to make myself rich. I'm not a peddler of God's word for power and money. 
I'm going to preach as someone of sincerity. I'm going to preach with an open heart and clear and pure motives. I'm going to preach as commissioned by God, sent out from God. Only the message of God. That's all. I'm an ambassador, he says, elsewhere in the Bible. And an ambassador does not give their own opinion. The ambassador only gives the opinion of their sovereign. And you're an ambassador. And you're giving God's opinion as you speak. Make it only God's opinion. I'm commissioned out of God, from God. And I'm commissioned to work in the sight of God. All my actions, all my thoughts, everything I do, God sees. And I know that. And yet still he wants to use me. That's grace. And I've been commissioned in the sight of God to speak in Christ, about Christ. And here I am. My authority is from God. My help is from God. My message is from God. My commission is from God. I'm just a trophy of grace speaking about the one who has conquered sin and death and hell and judgment. And I don't really know what's going on. Only God does. And I don't know. All I can do is what God calls me to do. That's you. All you can do is what God calls you to do. All you can do is take the opportunities that God gives with the skills and gifts that he's given you. You're not Paul. You're not meant to be Paul. You're you. You're you. And you're not living in Roman Britain. You're living today. You. And to take every opportunity you have to speak about Jesus Christ. And it's not for us to decide the end. It's just for us to be faithful. God will decide the end. And it's not for us, really, that we will do in the middle of it, to try and make a judgment on how successful things are. You've not a clue. You've not a clue. We don't know. We, we, don't, we don't know. We don't know what's going on. Can I make a little confession? I've got big ears. Though you're not very quiet. <laughs> and a friend of ours here was talking about a funeral service that another friend of ours preached many years ago. And it's still remembered by someone who preached the sermon many years ago now, a number of years ago. And the sermon is still preached. And it's still remembered. We don't know. We don't know what effect the words we say will have on someone today or in two years' time or in 20 years' time. We don't know, do we? It's for God to decide that. And it's not for us to decide on whether a message was successful or not. Who are we to decide on those things? God decides. Ultimately, we are but servants in his victory parade. And he will have the victory. And to him be the glory. And you don't know the effect you're having on people. And you may feel that this last year, things didn't go the way I thought they would. Well, I suspect they didn't. And I suspect that next year things won't go the way that you thought they would. But be faithful and let God decide.